Morning, Lakewood. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just a quick little scheduling update, so to speak. I'm looking forward to being able to open up God's Word with you this week and next week, and then for the rest of the summer, looking forward to having a number of other people, including Dave, uh, with us, opening up God's Word together. Uh, I'm going to take the next two weeks, though, and speak a little bit more specifically to where we're at as a church. And we're going to be talking about the idea of anchors that hold. I hope you can kind of see the anchors that we've got over here, that they don't get totally lost uh, in the blue light. But we've got a bunch of anchors over here. They're from uh, the Minnesota School of Diving down on Washington Street. What I really wanted was that huge anchor that they've got outside, right? And I called him up and I said, hey, any chance we could borrow that? And he said, do you have any clue how much that thing weighs? And I figured between like Joel Jacobson and Chuck Drugsman and some other guys, we could probably get it to the front doors out there, but I didn't know how we'd get it from the front doors of the main entry into the great hall here. So we had to go with, with the smaller ones, but I'm excited to be able to look at anchors that hold this weekend next. A couple of years ago, a number of years ago, actually, Allison and I knew a couple who had a sailboat up in the Apostle Islands uh, uh, on Lake Superior. And they invited us to go sailing with them for a weekend. So we said, oh, okay, sure, never really done that. That sounds like fun. And the second night that we were on the boat, we spent just moored in the marina, so that was, you know, easy. But the first night, we actually sailed out, and we spent the night at anchor off of Stockton Island. And it was a calm island at night, and it, we were in a bay of the island. But for me, landlubber that I am, I was still surprised by the process that we had to go through to properly set the anchor, right? Because it wasn't, I'm just thinking like, okay, anchor, right? You throw it overboard and you're good. No, that's not how it works in this situation. You get the anchor, you throw it overboard, but before you even do that, you have to figure out, okay, wait, how deep is the water here? What are our surroundings like? And exactly where do we want to try to position the boat so that we'll be sheltered from the wind and also far enough away from any other boats that might be in the area? And then after you've figured that out, then you throw the anchor overboard very carefully and in the right spot. And then you pay very close attention to how much chain and rope you're letting out so you know how much total length you have between the anchor and the boat. And then when it hits bottom, you pay attention to that and you put the boat around. All this stuff. It was a process. And then the guy whose boat it was, he pulls out his iPad and he inputs all this data about what type of uh, setup he had. He had, I think, some chain and then some rope and how much rope and all these other things and exactly where the anchor was so that his iPad could calculate the radius of the area that the boat could drift in and still be at anchor and then set off this alarm if somehow the anchor had broken loose during the night. I'm thinking that's a lot of work, right? Is all that really necessary? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And if all that's really necessary on a little 35-foot sailboat in a bay on a calm night, I imagine what it's like to set an anchor on one of the ships coming in and out of Duluth or an aircraft carrier or something big and crazy like that. Or imagine how much care you would take in setting an anchor if you knew a storm was coming. 
and more than just being potentially inconvenienced by having the anchor pull up, your life could be at stake. The ship could be at stake. I imagine what it would be like to set an anchor when it's the difference between life and death. And that can happen because I was thinking about anchors and boats this week, and and this really crazy thing occurred to me. When a boat is floating, it's not attached to anything. I know you're saying, thank you, Captain Obvious. Don't think about that too hard, okay? Don't, yeah. It just occurred to me, though, that a floating boat has no attachment to anything solid. So an anchor becomes this connection between one object that is totally at the mercy of the wind and the waves and something that is solid and immovable. And as he began to think about anchors in our own life and anchors that hold that idea of a connection between something solid and immovable and our own lives, which can at times feel at the mercy of the wind and the waves, really started to click. You feel like sometimes your life is at the mercy of the wind and the waves? And let's be real for a second here, Lakewood. Um, I didn't come up with this two-part sermon series for the fun of it. We're talking about anchors that hold this week and next because as a church, our world has been rocked. And we find ourselves in seas that are rolling and winds that are gusting. Last Sunday, it was announced that Brian, our now former senior pastor, uh, resigned because he had broken trust with the congregation and he had been plagiarizing his sermons. Three weeks ago, we were sitting here listening to him and didn't have a clue what was going on. And maybe today we feel adrift. Maybe today we feel like we're at danger of being dashed against the rocks. And we might feel adrift. We might feel that danger. But I want us to know this morning that we are not at the mercy of the storm. We need not despair as individuals Or as a church, we have anchors that hold. I'm grateful for the chance to take a look at those. And uh, this week, we want to focus in on Scripture itself as an anchor that holds. And we need to know this morning that Scripture is a strong anchor that will hold fast in any storm. This word, this book, this revelation of God to us will stay steady and immovable no matter what's going on on the surface. So let's open up our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. We'll look at a number of different passages this morning, but Hebrews chapter 6 will be our anchor text, so to speak. Uh Haha, come on, pun intended. Okay, never mind. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please go ahead, go up and grab one out of the back. We've got some ready for you. We'd love for you to take that with you, even if you don't have a Bible at home. If you're not quite sure where Hebrews is, it's almost to the very end of the Bible. Uh, if you get to James and some Johns and some Peters you've, or Revelation, you've gone too far. But other than that, it's almost at the end of the Bible. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, and I'll start reading in verse 13. The author of Hebrews, we're actually not quite sure who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews says this. 
When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Let me pray for us. Father, we freely acknowledge this morning that as, an ind- as individuals and as a body, we are desperately in need of your presence, your comfort, your wisdom, and your strength. We know that you are ever-present in all of your creation and especially present when we gather as your body. We know that you comfort us through your indwelling spirit. And we know that you give wisdom freely without finding fault when we walk in fear of you. And God, we know that you meet our weakness with your all-sufficient strength. So, Father, we come to you this morning and we just ask that you would remind us of what we know. That you would meet us in our need. And even as we ask it, God, we know that you will do it. And we know that, in fact, you already have. We love you, Lord. Amen. I like the book of Hebrews. But I'll be honest, sometimes it gets a little bit complex. Sometimes I'm not quite sure what he's saying, and it takes some extra work to map it out and figure out where the author is coming from and where he's going. And as we look this morning at the ways in which Scripture is an anchor, I want to start by just diving into the complexity of this, these verses that we read a little bit to better understand the truth that God has for us in it. What's happening is that in this passage and throughout the book, the author of Hebrews is exhorting his readers to stand firm in their faith. And in order to help them do that, he's reminding them of all the different ways that God has promised things to his people and then fulfilled those promises in Christ. You can see an example of this if we bump up just a couple of verses from where we were uh, to verse 9 of chapter 6. And just kind of following along through chapter, uh, verses 9 through 12, what's going on is that in verse 9, the author is reminding his uh, readers that God has good things for them. That God has salvation planned for them. And then in verse 10, what the author is saying is he's saying, look, you guys have gotten off to a good start. God's not for, going to forget about the love that you have and the ways that you have shown that love for others. You've gotten off to a good start. So then in verse 11, after saying, hey, you've had a good start, he says, you've got to finish what you've started. 
so that you can fully realize the hope that you have. A good start, finish. And then in verse 12, he says, instead of being lazy, what you need to do is you need to follow in the footsteps of those who have inherited the promises of God through faith and patience. That sets him up in verse 13 to talk about Abraham and to talk about the promises that God made to Abraham and how Abraham responded to those as a model of faith and patience. And it was a model that we as God's people should emulate. Now, the patience and the faith that Abraham had doesn't stand on its own, but instead it's a faith, it's a patience for those things that God said to Abraham he was going to do. So what the author of Hebrews is doing in these verses uh, in 13 and following is he is just laying out for his readers how God said to Abraham he was going to do some stuff. And what the author is saying is he's saying, now normally uh, when somebody says they're going to do something, you can trust them, you can take them at their word. But we all understand that even in human behavior, there are times when we want more than somebody saying something. We want a promise. Somebody says, hey, I'll be there for our coffee meeting at 2 o'clock. And you know that they've already skipped out a couple of different times. Hey, is, is that a promise? Can I be sure? If you're going to do something really important like buying a house, you're probably going to write up a contract for it. Because you want to do something of that magnitude on more than a handshake deal. We get that there are times when you want more than what somebody has said. See, the funny thing is, though, with God, He's always going to do what He says. So with God, we don't need any more than what He's already said. But what we see here is that in this situation with Abraham, and you can check it out in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18, later this today or later this week, if you want to look at exactly what God said. But when God was talking to Abraham, God condescended to where Abraham was at. And he not only told Abraham what he was going to do, but he swore an oath. He made a promise. So the author of Hebrews is pointing to that and is saying, look, God not only says things, but then he swore an oath. And by those two things, added to the fact that it is impossible for God to lie, we have a confidence that is unshakable. Just like Abraham did. And he does this, the author of Hebrews does this for us for our encouragement. Verse 18, we see, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, the, what God originally said and the promise that he made on top of it, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope, hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We can be encouraged this morning. God does what he says he's going to do. And as we're encouraged, as we take hope, we recognize, verse 19, that that hope is an anchor for our soul. In storms, we need things that are solid. We need things that don't move. The fact that God does what he says he will do is an anchor. When we read things in Scripture, when we read things that God has said to us, said to His people, those things for us are a strong anchor. You know, I th think of anchors sometimes, and I, 
I tend to think of a little anchor like this, right? This is the kind of anchor you use when what's at stake? Your fishing spot, okay? This is the kind of anchor you use if you're on a 12-foot rowboat or a canoe and you don't want to drift away from where the fish are biting. That's not the kind of anchor we want to think of when we're thinking of Scripture. Big anchors, heavy anchors, sometimes... (laughs) Ugly anchors, not at all that scripture is ugly, but just that it's there to do a job. It's there to serve a purpose. It's there to take care of us. And as scripture is an anchor, I think we need to recognize this morning that there are times when anchors can be really comforting, but people don't always like them. We can understand from Scripture that God's going to do what He says He will do, but we also have to understand from Scripture that God expects us to do what He would tell us to do. And it would be very possible to look at the anchors of Scripture at times not as an invitation, but a limitation. And there are people all around us who would have us say, yeah, this book is an anchor. It's holding you back. You've got to cut yourself free. Quit listening to it. And what we need to do increasingly and all the more as a body of Christ is say, no, the anchor of Scripture is not a limitation, but it's an invitation. It's an invitation to safety. It's an invitation to life as it's meant to be lived. It's an invitation to health and to wholeness. And I'm going to hold fast to it and I'm going to stay tied to it Even at times when I feel like, you know what, I'd I'd rather go further because I recognize that doing what Scripture tells me to do is an invitation to safety. It's not a limitation on my freedom. Given that Scripture is a strong anchor, knowing that we're at a spot right now as a church in which we need a strong anchor, this morning I want to bring to us three different things. That I think God uh, would have us as a congregation hear from His Word. Uh, These are things that are clear in Scripture. And that I think we need to pay attention to regardless of the situation. But these are things that I think are especially applicable for us here today. Let me just take a minute and say too that if you're here visiting, um, maybe you're like, wow, what is going on at this church? Yeah, yeah, it's a little different this Sunday, sorry. Um... But we're looking at God's Word. So if you're here visiting with us this morning, what's coming from God's Word is no less applicable to you than it is to anybody else. Let me also say that what I say this morning that I believe God has for us out of His Word, I say to all of us together as a congregation. I say these things to myself. We're all in this together as a family, Lakewood. So this isn't coming from on high as we better shape up. This is all of us together looking in the mirror of God's word so that we can hold fast to the anchor as an invitation to freedom, as an invitation to safety, not a limitation on what we want to do. So three things from God's word I think he would have us here. First, Scripture is clear that we need to trust our leaders. A caveat on that. 
the elders didn't ask me to say this, okay? They didn't know I was going to say this, except for Al, because I checked a couple things with him. Uh, They didn't put me up to this. And I can also understand if you would be reluctant to trust our leaders given what has happened. I can imagine you saying, man, you're asking us to trust our leaders when three weeks ago our primary leader was essentially lying to us as he was preaching the sermon? Yeah, I get that. Here's the thing. It's, it's not me asking us to trust our leaders. It's God's word. If you're still in Hebrews chapter 13, please turn to verse, uh, or please turn to chapter 13, verse 17. And here the author says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. A couple of observations. First, from this passage, it's calling us to have confidence and to submit to our leaders. Some of you might have a version where instead of saying have confidence in your leaders and submit to them, it says obey and submit to them. I think confidence or trust here is a much better translation. The word that's used there that is sometimes translated have confidence or sometimes translated obey is not the word most often used for obedience in the New Testament. And its most frequent translation doesn't have to do with obedience, but rather it has to do with persuasion and trust and confidence in someone or something. So what the author of Hebrews is communicating here isn't an obedience born of authority. Rather, it is a submission born of trust. The imperative that we have here, the command that we're receiving, isn't just to do what your leaders are telling you to do, but rather it's to have our hearts positioned such that we are willing to be convinced by what they are telling us. We are willing to trust them. And when we trust somebody, that's when we can rightly submit to them. Submission is born of trust. Obedience is born of authority. And in this passage, what God is telling his people is that we need to be willing to trust our leaders. And he says that for a reason. He says, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That's the second thing that we have to see in this passage is that Our leaders are ultimately accountable to God, not to us. I know we have a congregational form of government in our church. That means that we elect the leaders. They're not appointed for us by bishops. It doesn't free us from the imperative to trust them. And it gives us great freedom. There's an invitation here to trust God as we trust our leaders. It's a beautiful thing that the leaders are not ultimately accountable to this congregation, that they are ultimately accountable to God. That is for our good and for our protection, and that is for the freedom of us as congregation members not to have to bear the burden 
It doesn't work well when we bear burdens that are meant for God alone. And keeping the leaders accountable is a burden that God places on himself, not on us. And lastly, when we trust our leaders, there's a benefit. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The clear implication is that when our leaders are serving out of joyful hearts and glad spirits, there is great benefit for the people of God. So we're not told to trust our leaders just to make things run smoothly. God is inviting us in to trust our leaders because he knows that that's what's good for us. God is inviting us to do this as an anchor keeping us in a spot that is safe. And as we trust our leaders, we can allow them to serve with joy and we can receive great benefit. I want you to know too on a more um, immediate level, the elders that we have serving here, past and present, are good men who love the Lord and who love this church. And trust also comes out of understanding motives. And these are men who are giving of themselves late meetings, extra phone calls, time away from family to love this body. Let's trust them. Let's accept God's invitation to be convinced in terms of where they're leading us and to find freedom in that. Let's accept God's invitation to be free of the burden of calling them to account and letting him take care of that. Second thing that I think we need to hear from God's word, we need to remember that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us, Lakewood. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, wow, Brent, that's really encouraging. Attendance is down. I can look in the bulletin. Giving is short. Uh, we just lost our senior pastor, and now you're telling us God doesn't even need us. Well, let's just all go home. It is encouraging because here's why. If God doesn't need us, we're free from having to make sure that everything's exactly right. And the truth that God doesn't need us is a truth that we see literally from Genesis to Revelation. Flip to Genesis 1, if you would, with me. First page of your Bible, well, after the table of contents and the copyright page. First page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. I love that. Oh, by the way, God made the stars. Last week, Herb geeked out a little bit on science. I get to do the same, okay? If you want to have some fun, Google how many stars there are in the universe. And then pay attention to the dates on the articles, all right? 2003, uh, some people from Australia took a look at one chunk of the sky, tried to count how many galaxies there were, tried to figure out how many stars there were in a galaxy in that chunk of the sky, and then did mu the multiplication and came up with 76 stars which is 
a seven with 23 zeros behind it. Then in 2010, seven years, t- seven years later, they said, oh wait, oops, the number's probably more like 300 sextillion stars. Then in 2016, they were looking through the Hubble telescope and they were like, you know what? Um, it turns out the galaxies are comprised of different stars than we thought. So there's probably 10 times as many galaxies in the known universe as we thought there were. So then they had to go back and redo the estimate on how many stars there were. And they said uh, that there are currently, the current estimation is about one septillion or like three times, four times as many as they thought there were in 2010, and I don't even know how many times as many as they thought there were in 2003. And even in that estimation, the guy who was putting it all together said, I want to emphasize that this is likely a gross underestimation. One with 24 zeros behind it. Again, to state the obvious, we can't even fathom how many that is. There's no way for us to wrap our heads around that. And how does Genesis treat that? Oh, he also made the stars. By speaking them into existence. Psalm chapter 50. Like I said, this is throughout scripture, so we're going to the middle, we're going to, or we hit the beginning, we're going to hit the middle, we're going to hit the end in a second. Psalm chapter 50, uh, starting in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall, or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all that is in it. God is looking at his people, Israel, and he's saying, Hey guys, you keep offering these sacrifices to me and I'm not going to bring a charge against you in regard to them. I'm not mad about it, but you got to know I don't need them. And we can think, wow, those silly Israelites sacrificing these animals thinking that God was hungry. Silly Lakewood. God, you really need our 25% going to missions, right? God, you really need our great facility, right? God, we built a habitat house. You really need us to do that, right? There is an invitation to us as believers and as a body to remember that God does not need us. Is he doing great things through us? Yes, absolutely. Can we delight in that? Can we rejoice in that? We can and we should. But we don't need to place on ourselves 
the burden of God needing us and we can find freedom in just joining him in what he's doing and not having to worry about producing exactly what he would have us to produce. Revelation chapter 2. I said Genesis to Revelation. We're going from the front to the back on this one. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. And, he's, and uh, Jesus says this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far, far you have fallen. Repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What God is saying to the church here in Ephesus is he's saying, look, there's something much more important than what you are doing. Love. And he's telling this church at Ephesus that if you don't get this love thing figured out, I'll shut the doors on your church and it'll be okay. That's an invitation. That's, that sounds harsh, but that's an invitation. It's an invitation to rest in what God has done, to rest in what God is doing, and to not worry about, God, are we doing enough? Are we big enough? Are we right enough? But to just focus in on loving the person that God would put in front of us. And that's the last thing, the third thing that I think God would have us hear this morning from his word. We need to love one another. We need to love one another well. Looking now at 1 John chapter 4. Scripture as a whole talks about love. It's the story of God's love for us, his people. It's uh, full of uh, directives to love one another because God has loved us. And in that way, I think 1 John chapter 4 is a distillation of the teaching of Scripture regarding love. I'm going to start in verse 7. John writes this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Jumping down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We're a congregation of six, seven hundred plus people. In a group that size, with events like we've experienced in the last couple weeks, there's going to be a lot of different reactions. That's okay, that makes sense. 
what isn't okay, what wouldn't make sense, what we can't allow ourselves to do as a congregation would be to allow those reactions to start to form us into groups and into teams and into factions that would cause us to not love one another well. I want to encourage us as a congregation in the weeks and months ahead to look at those who respond differently than we do and remember the command to love. How can we love others well? And as we do so, again, this is not a limitation on freedom. This is an invitation. And it's an invitation that starts with God loving us. Do you see how in these verses, John is so deeply rooting the love that we must have for one another in the love that God has already had for us. John points to the fact that love is never shown human to human. What real love is, what the real picture of love is, is what has, God has shown us in sending His Son. This is love, not that we love God, Our love is a paltry comparison to the love that God has for us. Because God, when we were His enemies, when we were rebelling against Him in sin, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay that punishment for sin that we never could so that we could be forgiven and free. And God didn't expect us to try to claw our way to Him because He knows that we never could. God made the way open through Jesus. And showed us great, amazing, unsearchable love in doing so. And as a result, he calls us to love one another. He says, you want to show that you love me? Love the people you can see. Love the people around you. I believe that God may be calling us as Lakewood to take the love that we have for one another and just turn up the volume. Don't hear me to be saying that it's not there and we've got to do something we haven't. That, that's not the case. What I'm saying is let's go to the next level. Let's love one another all the more. Let's remember all the more that God doesn't need us. That his power far exceeds anything we can imagine. That his purposes will be accomplished with or without our contributions. And that he just invites us to join him in what he's doing. Can you imagine, Lakewood, what God might do through us for His glory and by His power if we take this anchor and hold fast to it? If we take what we have already been doing to follow Him and turn up the volume and do it all the more? By His power for His glory, we can do that, Lakewood. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that uh, you do what you say you will do. That when you make a promise, we can bank on it. And we ask that you would help us to do so all the more in the days and weeks ahead as we have need. God, we ask that you would remind us that you are sovereign, that you are in control. We ask that you would remind us that nothing uh, that comes to us comes but through your hands. God, we ask that you would remind us that you're with us you see us, all those good things. And we ask to you, God, that by your spirit you would strengthen us to obey and hold fast to the anchor in that way. And God, as we do, we trust you 
knowing that you are good and that you have good for us. Amen.